Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Please open your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2 as we look at one verse today. You know, Luke and I, when we preach, we don't just point to a text and say, oh, let's preach that. We don't just make up stuff. We, we really want to preach things that are helpful. There's, there's a target. So this year, we've been talking about a clearer vision since the year is 2020, and we're changing themes every month. This month has been a clearer vision of Scripture. Now, that might seem odd to you because we're together because we do believe in the Bible. We believe that it's a map for life. Nevertheless, we can easily treat it sloppily, and we don't want that to happen because the Bible itself uh, tells us why it is so valuable. For instance, if you look at Psalm 19, this is what the psalmist writes there, beginning in verse 7. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, more than much, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward, and there is. And it's by these scriptures that much more good comes. For instance, it's, it's through the pages of scripture that we learn about this God who wants to be known, invites us into his presence to know him. This is how we know that we have fallen far from what God's desire is for us in this life. It points us to Jesus who is the remedy for our sin. This was God's son who wants a relationship with us. And that's why we need to be reminded of the power of scriptures this particular month. This is what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Now in a few minutes, Luke and I are going to answer some basic questions that people often have about the Bible itself. But before we do that, I want to use this one verse to prompt us to ask three questions. And the reason is, after these past three messages about the word of God. I, I want us to land well. I want us to bring it all together and ask these three basic questions that need to be answered by us as we continue our journey in knowing God through his son, Jesus Christ. The first one is this, is the Lord well pleased? The text says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. You see, it's possible to be successful in man's eyes, but to be an utter failure uh, when God is making an assessment of our lives. On separate occasions, the heavens opened, and God spoke of his own son, saying this, this is the son whom I love. In him, I am well pleased. Now, why was that so? 
Well, the Hebrew writer tells us before Jesus crossed the threshold from the throne room of God and stepped foot on this earth, he simply said, I have come to do your will. God delighted in the Son because the Son delighted in doing the Father's will. And that's what he wants of us. As Christ's followers, we are not chameleons. We are catalysts in this world. We are not thermometers registering the temperature of culture. We are thermostats to to make a difference, to determine it. We choose, we can choose pleasing man or pleasing God. Now, sometimes both will align. But at the end of the day, when all is is said and done, we have to choose that our first priority is to please God. The problem is, we so often go after the praise of man more than the praise of God. And brothers and sisters, that is a dangerous thing. Praise is something like perfume. It smells sweet, but if you swallow it, it's fatal. Be careful about such praise. It's God who gives the final approval. He is the one we are living for. And at the end of every day, we want to know that God will make an assessment of our lives and say to us, well done today. Good and faithful servant. The second question from this verse is, is the work well done? Is the work well done? You know, that, that calls for a passion for excellence. Not just the ideal of excellence, but a true passion to do things well. God has outlined his work for us well in the scriptures. That's one of the reasons we want to know them, because he's given us work to do. He told us, for instance, to make disciples. He told us to have compassion for the poor. He told us to take care of the widows and the orphans in their affliction. He told us as the body of Christ, we're to serve one another. He told us to be concerned about social injustice. He told us to love our neighbors. And there's other things as well. You know, there's a running controversy in art circles about who's the greater one, Michelangelo or his teacher, Bertaldo. He was a great teacher, and he warned his students, including Michelangelo, not to be, not to cruise on your talent, but to keep developing. And he didn't see that happening very well in Michelangelo himself. And so he walked into the studio one day, and Michelangelo was there putting around on a little piece of statuary. And Bertaldo picked up a sledgehammer and smashed it to smithereens. He said, Michelangelo, you are talented. And your life is about talent. And talent is not cheap. It is costly. And so it is. We say we have been loved by God. That love, God's love, is, is that agape love. It's the, it's the sacrificial love. It's the costly love. And what he's looking for us is service to him that cost us something that's why Paul is challenging us here. A workman, we're to be workmen who does, who does not need to be ashamed. Well, why would we be ashamed? Well, there could be a number of reasons. We've settled for low standards. Our aim is not high enough. Our, our, our service is not, is not anything that costs us anything. We've settled with a manageable mediocrity too often. And brothers and sisters, we have been redeemed by Jesus How could we dare think we can give him something that doesn't really require much? It totally violates the price he paid for us. There's an Old Testament account where King David 
is troubled because Israelites are dying like flies. So he goes to the high priest. He says, what should I do? And the high priest says, you need to make a sacrifice to God. And so King David leaves and he finds a piece of property. It belongs to a man by the name of Aruna. And imagine Aruna. He's looking out his tent flaps and his, his heart must skip a couple of beats because here he sees King David was in this entourage. And he comes out and said, King David, what can I do? And King David says, I want to buy a piece of your property because I want to make a sacrifice. And Aruna basically says, what? You must be joking. You're the king. I'm just, a, I'm just this little guy here. Look, you can have the property. You can have all the utensils you need. Here, I'll even give you the animal you need. And David says, nope, nothing doing. He makes that classic statement. He says, I will not offer to the Lord my God that which costs me nothing. It's a statement by which we should live, brothers and sisters, because the service that counts is the service that costs. To significantly make a difference requires a life that is not like a life found on the clearance rack at Target. But it's a life that is spent in a costly fashion, like a studio at Nordstrom. Does that depict your life? What price are you paying in the service of Jesus Christ? Is the work well done? And the third question, is the word well used? You know, my good brothers and sisters, God has spoken and he has not stuttered. He has been clear. This Bible is what God has given us. As Luke referred a couple of weeks ago, it's like a love letter to us. God is truth. That's his nature. But he chose to put truth into language form so that we might know him that we might understand him, that we may have an intimate relationship with him. This book isn't given us to satisfy our curiosity, but to change our lives. It's given us that we may be prepared to give an answer on the day we stand before God's judgment seat. An answer for our lives, for the work that we've done. We want our work to be good and the only way that's go we're going to arrive there is if, if the word is well used. Do your best to correctly handle the word of truth. That's what the scripture is saying. Correctly handling the word of truth. And to do that, you have to know the truth. We, we have to know it for ourselves. And we have to know it to communicate with others what God has for them. Which is life that is really life. And so as we do that, God expects us to live the truth. We can't just know the truth. We have to live the truth. Because what the scripture does, when it comes to life in us, when we cherish it, when we love discovering truth in it, it transforms us when it deeply is planted in us and we are able to bear fruit a hundred times over and over by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. So often we are long on information and we are short on transformation. And for others that ought not be, we're like poor photographs, overexposed and underdeveloped. 
But maybe your problem isn't overexposure at all. Maybe you're underexposed. You just haven't loved the word of God. And I really think that's the indication of a bigger problem. I just was talking in weekday chat this week about the back of my closet. I've got this shoebox. And I've got, I've got certain cards in there. They're cards from my wife to me on special days. And they have special notes in them. They don't mean anything to anybody else. And it's not that they are perfectly written. But it's because of who wrote them that I cherish them. If we don't cherish the word of God, brothers and sisters, I fear that may be a statement about a deeper problem. And that is my love for God himself, the author of these words. Someone has suggested that the greatest three days of a person's life, the day, the day he was born, the day he's born again, and the day he understands why he was born and born again. And brothers and sisters, the reason for that is that you and God, me and God can have an intimate relationship, that we can walk with God, that we can know God deeply. And then when we know that, when we experience that, we do our best to communicate with other people so that they can have that relationship too. And brothers and sisters, that will not happen unless we welcome this word of God and unless we can answer affirmatively tonight when we go to bed and the last day of our lives as well as every day between now and then is my Lord well pleased is my work well done and is my Bible well used we're going to pause right now the Raider family has a testimony to give. Ron is the chairman of our elders, and he has, has been leading his family in the way of the Lord. And we want them just to share a few words of, of testimony about their love for the Scripture and what it means for them. Hi, we're the Raider family, and last month we heard the challenge to memorize Colossians 3, 1 through 17. As a family, we decided we'd give it a shot. So this is our story of some of the uh, challenges, but also some of the blessings that come from that. So in memorizing uh, the scripture from Colossians, I like to use uh, Scripture Typer, this website where I could go back and uh, help me focus on the verses. We'll start you off typing out the whole passage, and then it removes words, and then eventually you type it without any hint or anything, so it's really helpful. I just read a little bit each day, and then we went over them as a family, and it was hard for me to learn them, but I did. I would take a whole section at a time, like five or six verses, and just keep repeating it until I got it down and I would have um, somebody else quiz me. Well, that scripture plays in our family. It like helps us uh, to know how we're supposed to act. Um, it tells us how the kids should act and how the parents should act and like how we should act as a whole family together. Uh, scripture plays a big role in our family. It's something, well, with this child, we worked on it together, but something that we talk about a lot together and want to base our lives off of. I've seen rewards, particularly with this passage in the time that we're all living in with the pandemic, um, the riots, uh, the racial tension, and just so many things going on right now politically. 
um, I tend to focus on those things and I can kind of spiral into doom and gloom and concern and worry. And this scripture in particular, when it speaks of um, focusing on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God versus focusing on these earthly things that are in our faces um, just calls me to remember that Christ is over all of this and that I need to put my focus and my attention on Him. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Luke and I are here now to answer just some basic questions about the Bible. It seems whenever we have people approach us, the questions often are the same. The same basic questions that uh, people struggle with about the Bible, want to know about the Bible. So we want to take just a few minutes to do that right now since they are common questions. We even asked people the last couple of weeks and the same kinds of questions come up. So one question that came up for us was about translations. How do you pick a translation? Are there some translations that are better than others? And... Um, we are blessed to have a number of translations. I think you said your favorite is the English. Yeah, I read the ESV. Here. Yeah, English yeah. Standard Version, which is a great version, uh, translation of the Bible. Here I have several that are here. They, kind, they sort of come in three categories. There are those that are the more word-for-word. Word. Now, not perfect word-for-word word because we, the, the Greek and Hebrew language doesn't always have a perfect equivalent word, but they're as close to the word-for-word word as possible. So the English Standard Version is one that, is the one that Luke uses. Also, another one is the New American Standard Bible. This is the Bible that uh, my professors in college really recommended, along with the American Standard Version. And then this is the one Luke uses. And then also is um, the, this the New King James Version, or the King James Version. Now, it's archaic in its language. We don't talk like that. It's 400 years old. 400 years ago, they spoke like that. It's very poetic. The scripture that I memorized were in the King James, and so I still value the King James, although I, I do use it, although I don't really use it in teaching and preaching anymore. Uh, this is an interesting interlinear, interlinear Bible. It basically has the Greek text and then it has underneath the Greek words kind of a word-for-word um, treatment of the text, which is really an interesting thing to look at sometimes. The second category is a thought-to-thought translation. We hear uh, preach from the NIV, uh, which is just a common Bible that a lot of people use, and so it's more thought-by-thought. Thought. In other words, it's it's not exactly word for word, but they'll take a, a sentence uh, or a phrase and and translate it into something meaningful for us with while preserving the meaning of the text. Mm-hmm. So a very uh, uh, a very good version to trust. I had a professor who uh, taught in graduate school, and he was part of the translation team for Luke and Acts. And I remember we'd be in class sometime and Dr. Foster would say, now I would not have chosen this word. And that's when he would explain why he thinks a better word would be there. Because there are different nuances. Mm -hmm. There are more tenses in the Greek language, for instance. Hebrew has a limited number of words. So there's challenges there. And then the final category is just a paraphrase. Like the Living Bible 
or the message, which I really wouldn't recommend for study at all. Uh, they get very loose in their terminology and, and explanation. They're really not translations. It's more a man putting in his own language uh, what he thinks the text is saying. And that can lead to some carelessness of handling the word. Now, I have the message. I have the living Bible. I'll pick it up sometimes. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of Bibles you can buy with study helps in there as well. Just remember when you buy those, and there are great things to have. You should have one. But just remember what part's the word of God, what part is man's statement about the word of God, right? Absolutely. Right. Uh, an another one of the questions that we got is, uh, how do we defend the Bible's authenticity, despite it being translated into yes. all these different languages and, and versions and being passed down from person to person and century to century? I mean, can we, can we trust that right. this is what the authors intended for us to have, that this is what God intended us to have? Right. And when we're uh, talking about that, we're talking about the doctrine of preservation. And uh, skeptics of the Bible say, well, it's kind of like the game of telephone, where you whisper something in one person's ear and they pass it on down the line and then the last person says right. what they hear and so what started out as have you been to the new sonic ends up as garbage bin with the new sonic you know it's, <laughs> they're just like totally yes. different things and they say well that's what happened the bible got distorted over the centuries this is not what uh, god intended for you to have this is not what the original authors wrote um and and to be sure scribes copied this scripture for hundreds and hundreds of years and they were trained to do so they did so with excellence but they are humans so right. every now and then they might misspell something or skip a word or skip a line on accident with a slip of the eye or something right. like that. And so we have the science of what's called textual criticism. Um, and we're blessed as Christians to have a wealth of manuscripts at our yes. disposal. And textual criticism is comparing these manuscripts and using a finely detailed scientific method to determine uh, to the best of our ability and with a high degree of accuracy what the original author wrote and what God intended for us to have. And uh, just one example of how accurate our scriptures are is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, mm -hmm. In the year 1947, there's a shepherd boy in the Middle East. He's taking care of some of his sheep and he throws a rock. The rock lands in this cave and he hears a crash. Well, he goes up to investigate and finds out that this rock had smashed into a jar. And sure enough, this cave is just full of jars and inside are these ancient documents. Well, after that cave was excavated and the cave, excuse me, the caves around it, uh, they found over 100,000 fragments of over 800 ancient documents dating back to before the time of Jesus. These were copies of the Old Testament that were 1,000 years older than our previous oldest copies of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And so they began comparing these copies to the copies that we have, and what they found is that they're incredibly accurate. Yeah. So just, just one example from Isaiah chapter 53, big chapter in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 53, there are 166 words. And of those 166 words, throughout the thousand year gap between the manuscripts we had and the manuscripts that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there were only 17 letters in question. Now, 10 of those were just issues of spelling, how to spell a word. Four others were uh, minor stylistic changes, like a conjunction or something. And the remaining three letters made up one small word, the word light, which really had no impact on the meaning of the chapter whatsoever. So over a thousand years of this being passed down from person to person to person to person, there was only one word that was even remotely questioned. And that high degree of accuracy is true for all of scripture. Like we yes. said earlier, we have over 20,000 
2,000 New Testament ancient manuscripts that were from very early, many of them attested by eyewitnesses themselves. And this manuscript evidence is so overwhelming that the majority of scholars, both Christian scholars and non-Christian scholars, agree that our New Testament is the most accurate of any ancient document. So we can trust that this Bible that you have is the Bible that the authors intended for you to have and that God intended you to have. Yeah, and any, any ch- little slight changes there are in scribal areas, it doesn't change doctrine or no, the no, essence no. of truth, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Another popular question is, do we take the Bible literally or figuratively? And the main principle is you take it, you take it literally unless the language suggests there is figuratism involved in all this. Um, and there is, there is figurative language, just like when we have in conversation, we'll use figurative language sometimes. So does the Bible. And so we take it literally for what it says. You have to consider the genre. In other words, what style of literature uh, is being, is, is, written here because there are different styles. Some of it is in narrative form. Some is poetic in style. Some of it's prophetic. And, and some of it's just biographical, like, like the life of Jesus. And so, for instance, if you're reading out of, out of one of the books of poetry, which are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, you're going to treat that differently. And there's a lot of figurative language and beautiful language. The Psalms talks about us being under, under God's wings, well, does God have wings? Well, we know that's in the context. That's not what it's speaking about. It's speaking about the care and the, the protection that God provides for us. And so there, there, there are times when the Bible is figurative. You know, it's figurative when it's something that's absurd or something that would even seem immoral. Um, for instance, when Jesus says, if your hand or foot offends you, cut it off. Well, he's not literally meaning that. He just is teaching us the seriousness of sin. And we want to take it that way and, 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 and understand sin and its devastating result. Um, one time Jesus says in John 6 to, that we're to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Well, there were some people who didn't understand this and thought Christians were rather cannibalistic or saying, well, that's not what Jesus was saying. He is saying that we can be full partakers in who Jesus is. It's a figurative speech. We have in Revelation, we have a double-edged sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus in the first chapter of Revelation. Well, not, not literally. It's teaching us something about an attribute of God and his, his ability to judge, judge properly and, and, and honestly. And so figurative language is in the scripture, but take it literally until the, until the context suggests this is a figurative kind of speech, and then we interpret it otherwise. Absolutely. Um, another question that we got is, uh, who decided the final composition of the Bible? Which, yes. of the, which 66 books were going to make it? Which ones are in? Which ones are out? How do we, can we trust what decisions that they made? Um, and perhaps you heard, you've heard of the Da Vinci Code in which the author Dan Brown asserts things like the church has been hiding all these books of the Bible for centuries and there's these hidden books that reveal these truths about Jesus and he asserts that the people in power in the 300s AD got together to decide which books of the Bible to hide and which ones to put together for people to have. And that really is just the hogwash. It just ignores the centuries-long process of what's called canonization. That's a big word. It's based on the word canon, uh, which is based on the Hebrew word for reed or stock because a reed would be used as like a measuring stick. And so the process of canonization is determining which books meet the standard, which ones measure up and are gonna make it into the scripture and which ones don't. And so when you're judging the 
canonicity of a particular book of the Bible or a work of writing, uh, they would use five standards to determine whether or not it would uh, make it into the Bible. These five criteria. The first one is authority. Uh, Does this writing have the power of God? Uh, The second one is authorship. Is the person who wrote this a prophet of God? Uh, The third criteria would be authenticity. Does this tell the truth? Is it in line with previous teaching and previous scripture? Uh, The fourth criteria, is this alive? Hebrews 4, like you said, says the word of God is alive and active. Does this have the power uh, to change lives? Has it been attested by works of God? And the fifth and final criteria is acceptance. Is this commonly used by the people of God in public worship? And by judging by those five criteria, over centuries of God's people worshiping together and studying his word together, they determined which books we would have and which ones did not make it. And uh, for some of the works who didn't make it, there's two real classifications you need to know. One is called the Apocrypha. There's 14 works of the Apocrypha that uh, the Roman Catholics include in their Bible, but we do not. And there's some good and helpful information in the Apocrypha, but it does not measure up to the standard of scripture. And then there's what's called the Pseudepigrapha, which include things like the Gospel of Thomas, and the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. And these are fanciful, they're made up, they're not attested, they're not historically accurate, and it's those works that uh, Dan Brown writes the Da Vinci Code based off of. And this, keep in mind, this, this process of uh, determining which books were in and out of the Bible, it did take a long time to cement finally which ones would be in the canon. The 39 books of the Old Testament uh, were all finalized by about 200 years before Jesus, and uh, the works of the New Testament and all 66 books were determined by the late 300s AD, but it's not like it took people that long to figure out what was the word of God. When Moses wrote down the law, they knew he was a prophet and they took it as God's word. And when Peter and Paul and John were writing to the churches, they knew these are God's appointed prophets. These are spokesmen for the Lord. We're going to take this as God's word. So they were commonly accepted long before the uh, 66 official books of the Bible were canonized. Peter even mentions about Paul's writings alongside scripture, right? He knew it was scripture. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, that's great. Great helpful information for us all, good reminders. Also, a question comes about this word inspired, meaning God breathed. Well, what exactly does it mean, God breathed? Does that mean that God dictated the word of God? And, you know, it is an interesting challenge to put our head around this, what it means God breathed. When God God breathed us into existence, he brought life. You know, he, he moved, he made things happen. And so, when he authored the scripture by the Holy Spirit, there are probably times he did dictate. I don't know that, but it does say, uh, God, God says to Moses, write these things down when he was given the law. I don't think it's far-fetched to think that God told, exa- told Moses exactly what to write about creation. Much of the story of creation would have been passed down orally for Moses finally to write it, but I think God must have been involved in that process as well. But primarily, the Bible, to be, to be God-breathed, it means that God used the personality of the writer He used the experience of the writer. He used the giftedness of the writer. He used the investigation of the writer. Um, He used whatever was necessary to, to, to bring all that together and to somehow breathe into that person and blend these things together to write what he wanted to write. It certainly is a Holy Spirit functioning person that God used to bring his Bible into existence. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I like to picture like a train. You're on a train and this train has a destination. 
On that train, there's a lot of movement. There's a lot of things happening. There are people eating. There are people talking. There are people doing crossword puzzles. Or there are people getting up to stretch and walk around. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of free will movement coming and going. But, but nothing changes the ultimate destination of the train. There's an engineer that makes sure that train stays on the tracks. And that was what the Holy Spirit does as he inspired these, these 40 different authors over 1,500 years to pen the words of God. It's a fascinating study all by itself. But what a wonderful place we are to be able to land well and just, just know we can trust this is the word of God. Absolutely. And again, with all of these, like we've said every week, please, please, please sign up for Equip You because we're only skimming yes. the surface here. We can go yeah. so much much deeper and you will benefit by going deeper into these issues. But uh, all of these discussions are ultimately pointless, like you said, if they don't leave, lead us into actually diving into our Bibles on our own and growing in our love for the Lord. Exactly. And so I love that the last question we were given is this, what's the right amount of time to spend in God's word every day? How much ground should I be trying to cover as I read my Bible? Um, how, how do I make sure that I'm reading the Bible differently than just another plain old book or article? How do I treat this as sacred? How do I help it grow me in my love for the Lord? And and starting with the question of just, first of all, how much time should I spend in the Bible? How much should I be reading? Um, it just depends on your experience and on your maturity and where you are in your faith walk, wherever you are. I'd encourage you to just take the next step. If, if all you're doing right now is uh, just maybe reading out of a devotional, something like the Jesus Calling, I'd encourage you to dive into God's actual word. Yes. Read the words of the actual Bible. And if all you're doing is maybe getting the daily verse from you version on your phone, uh, dive deeper than that. Read, read a chapter of the New Testament. If you are reading a chapter of the New Testament, Read one of the Old Testament also. Wherever you are, just, just take another step. And as far as how much you should be covering and doing, uh, there's so many different plans that you can that you can go. And, and I certainly vary depending on the season of life that I'm in. There's some plans that'll uh, take you through big chunks of scripture all at once. There've been times where I'll sit down and I'll read all of Philippians or something like that, or a whole bunch of chapters all at once. And, and that's really helpful because you can yes. understand the grand sweep of the book. You can see how the characters develop. You can get a, a, a picture, a feel for the the, the big story and how it's all going along, that's really helpful to take it all at a whack because they were meant to be read and, and uh, allowed in, in large portions. Right. Um, there's other times and other Bible plans where they'll have you read a little bit from several different parts of the Bible, maybe a chapter of the Old Testament and a Psalm and something from the Gospels and something from the Epistles. And, and, and that's really good too, to take a sampling, to kind of mm -hmm. get a feel for the different genres and how they uh, compare and contrast with one another and get a, a picture of the grand meta narrative of scripture and how it all ties together. And then honestly, there's other times in the season I'm in right now, I'm just reading a little bit. I'm Right now I'm reading uh, one Psalm and one chapter from the Gospels every day. And the benefit of that is it allows me to read really, really slowly. And I'm just chewing on every single word and I'm reading and rereading and rereading and just letting it soak in. So wherever you are, it, it, it can vary. Just make sure that you're constantly taking steps toward the Lord. Just take the yes. next step. And, and the, back to these translations, I mean, just, you know, change it up. Mm -hmm. uh, read different versions of the same chapter, different versions, or, yeah. or get acquainted with another version. But there, I think there, don't you think it's better to have one particular Bible version that you use primarily all the time? Yeah, certainly. Yes. I, I come back to the ESV. Sometimes I do like to, hey, I'm going to see what the NASB and the NIV and the message all say about Absolutely. this. And read them in tandem, Absolutely. you know, something yes. like that. As far as letting it grow, grow you in your love for the Lord, because remember, the purpose is not just to gather information, it's to grow in relationship. There's this 
ancient practice called Lectio Divina that could be helpful. It's just a fancy word for divine reading, but it's the art of letting, as you read, letting God speak to you. You're trying to discern his voice. So as you read, don't just rush into it. Spend time in silence before you jump into the word. Ask God to speak to you. Draw your mind and your heart into his presence and then read slowly. And if something jumps out at you, don't rush on past it. Sit there, dwell on it, linger on it, chew on those words. Pray again, God, what do you want me to see from this? And don't rush out of your Bible reading. When you are done, when you have read and reread, spend time in silence and talk with the Lord about what you're learning and praise him and ask him to help you live it out. Yes, I'm gonna add with that. I've heard many people say along the way, well, I get my Bible done when I'm on the way to work and I put the audio Bible in. And certainly that's commendable and you're gonna gain something by that, but not the same as you're sitting in quietness, reflecting on the pages of scripture. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So we just hope you learn to love the Bible more deeply and to engage it, invite it into your life because as you're doing that, you're welcoming the very message of God, the heart of God into your life. And when you do that, you can't leave the same way you entered. So right now we're going to prepare for the Lord's Supper. We love this time around the table. And even though we're at different places, uh, we are one because of Christ Jesus. And uh, when Peter was writing his letter, uh, he, was, he was writing to a people who were really beat up because of, their, because of all, all they stood for in Christ. They were living in a culture that uh, was completely against them. And so Peter writes to encourage them. And he's, he writes this, to this you were called, this godly life in a godless culture. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Luke's going to lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, you've given us so many good things. We thank you for your word, that we get to know you and hear your voice. And we thank you for the word made flesh, that you sent your son who lived a perfect life, and yet was accused and arrested and betrayed and beaten and condemned to die. And he didn't fight it because of his great love for us. While we were yet sinners, he sent Jesus to die for us. And because he has borne our sins and his body on the cross, we can now live for you. Thank you. And during this time, as we take the bread and we take the juice and we remember the body and the blood, we thank you, we honor you, We remember you, and we eagerly anticipate your return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.